Hey there, folks. Alex Lokes here, and welcome back to Classic Camera Revival. And today we are talking about a camera system that changed the world, because it did. And some people know it as the Alpha. Some people know it as Dynex. And for us here in North America, we called it Maxim. So let's roll the intro and get going. Welcome to the Classic Camera Revival, coming to you from the Greater Toronto Hamilton region of Ontario, Canada. If you don't have gear acquisition syndrome now, you most likely will by the end of the episode. And the intro gets put in here. Do, 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 do. Okay, folks, welcome back. And today in the studio, we have our good friend Marwin again from Silver Grain Classics. He's not just a Leica guy, folks. Nope, he loves his Minolta autofocus. So welcome back to the show, Marwin. Hello. How are you doing, Alex? Doing well, doing well. And we also have a recent convert to the Maxim line, our very own James Lee. Good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Okay. I love my Maxim 9. Yeah, it's an awesome camera. But before we get to the 9, we have to go all the way back to the 1970s, 1980s. So Marwin, what was Minolta doing at the time? Well, the um, um, Minolta was uh, very well known since the SRT series. The SRT 101 were for their um, SR mount cameras. They had uh, manual focus um, and they tried in the early 70s to get into the pro market with the XM, XK or X depending on the market cameras. And um, uh, at the end of the 70s, uh, when they were extremely successful with the XD and XE series, they started to um, enter the 1980s with the X700. That was a manual focus camera, uh, which was totally successful. And it was built till 1999, by the way. And it was camera of the year in 81 in Europe. And... um, Everybody expected that this will go on this time uh, with this series. But then in 1985, they came out with the 7000, which was the first autofocus camera uh, with internal autofocus. And that was very surprising for the entire industry. It was also called the Sputnik shot because nobody really believed that this is going to work. Um, uh, Having a full in-camera autofocus. Um, Leica did something like that in the mid-70s uh, with the C1 um, uh, based on the R3, but uh, everybody really thought impossible and even the competition had nothing that matched the uh, new 7000. Okay, so break it down. What were the um, first three models? Well, um, the first one, well, they started with the 7000, which we would today call a prosumer model. Um, Seven mostly stands for, well, advanced amateur models, Um, and uh, then followed by the 9000, which was very, very special because it is the only autofocus camera till today uh, without a a motor transport film advance. Um, So you still have a a, a lever that we just can advance the film. You can attach a a motor drive with up to five frames per second, Um, a motor winder, which goes two to three seconds, frames per second. And then they had an entry level one with um, called the 5000, which was um, so in the range of 
um, the entry amateur who wanted to enter that system. And it came also, and that was that was the problem for the competition. It came with a full range of, I think it was 17 to 18 lenses at the time um, with new designed uh, systems. So it was an entire, entire out-of-focus universe already uh, with flash system. Everything was dedicated to out-of-focus. There's an interesting fact there too, like back in, in the mid seventies or late seventies, um, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Honeywell, uh, Honeywell, the yeah, American yeah. technology company and that, uh, Honeywell and Minolta got into a dispute um, with, with the first phase of, um, of uh, autofocus technology called TCL mm-hmm. uh, technology mm-hmm. and <clears throat> a jury uh, eventually, I think financially ended up siding with um, uh, with Honeywell and awarding them a settlement, but acknowledging that it was sort of an accidental copyright infringement. And that was the, um, I think, one of the catalysts anyway that that pushed Minolta to in in '85 to develop the autofocus systems that you see yeah. in the Maxim system now. So quite an interesting um, history, I think, as to how. You know what motivates companies to do these things, and we saw something similar, um, and not yeah, well, similar, not the same, but uh, with the OM1 and uh, uh, and the uh, and Leica, um, with, you know, just in from a naming standpoint, two completely different cameras, but really interesting when we look back at it today, what what they were fighting about in the 70s and 80s. What is yeah. interesting is that uh, I had a few uh, years ago a talk with some people from Leica, which were designing in the 70s the autofocus system for Leica, which was introduced in the mid 70s at the Photokina on the R3. Mm-hmm. And they said that at the time when Honeywell filed the um, uh, the um, um, how do you say that the uh, patent. The, oh, the, patent, yeah. the patent for autofocus system, um, they had been at the Leica factory a few weeks earlier. Hmm. And if you just go into the the uh, the patent papers, it is a very raw uh, design. It just says, well, there's a black box, there's a motor, and there's the lens. And there is the black boxes. <laughs> and that was uh, that was the patent for autofocus. It was a very widespread. Um, yeah. uh, right. and, and later on, well, it was definitely, there was a cooperation between Minolta and Leica. Mm-hmm. I personally believe it was not a copy of, or they didn't steal the. Yeah. No. And Honeywell sued everyone. Yes. Right. <laughs> they went after Pentax, Konica, Canon, Nikon. Yeah, they but just... that comes later. I think we can talk later in the second generation when, or the third generation, the 9XI. That was when the time with the Honeywell uh, lawsuit. Yeah, yeah. And the XIs are, are interesting cameras as well. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but the those initial ones, they weren't exactly the most refined. The autofocus was slow, um, and the cameras themselves looked like VCRs from the 1980s. Yes. Yeah, it is a typical 80 design. And yeah. just also the sound. One cup, um, but the sound, the sound of uh, the cameras I have here is seven thousand. That it was a very, oh, yeah. very untypical sound for an SLR. Yeah. Um, now the the uh, the nine thousand sounds different. It sounds mm-hmm. more mechanical. Especially the nine thousand is honestly, in my opinion, a really a masterpiece. It is a very very mechanical camera. Really good thought through. Um, sure, it has after 30, 40 years, uh, you get some kind of flaws, uh, technically, if you don't do service ends, but at the time, it was really a breakthrough. Mm, definitely. Now, they did make a small update 
to these uh, cameras. So the 7000i. Exactly. Yeah, that was two or three years later. Um, in the meanwhile, um, that's also important to say that because nobody had really a working autofocus, nor Canon. Not, mm -hmm. Canon had the T80, which was kind of a, yeah, if you have um, uh, eye problems, it just helped you really to focus. But <laughs> it was mm -hmm. more a handicapped system, uh, we can call it nowadays. Um, yeah. and, Plus, um, Pentax had the um, ME that mm -hmm. they built an autofocus for, and... Uh, Nikon did the F3AF, which ended yes. up being a dead-end system as well. Yeah. yeah, it was a dead-end system, but it was also more a prototype level. Um, yeah. The Pentax system was also more designed like it was very bulky. Shinon mm. had uh, some kind of infrared uh, yeah. system that was more based on the Honeywell design. Um, so, But really, the, the, the autofocus as we know it today was was really the, the first one, was Minolta uh, coming out with it. Now, the 7000i was an improvement over the 7000, and they added another function called a chip card system. So uh, you could uh, reprogram the camera, and you could also add, for example, different programs. Well, that's a typical 1980s thing. Uh, everything had to be programmed, should be programmable and should be... <laughs> <laughs> designed for your certain needs. Um, but it was an improvement over the 7000. The cameras got much faster. It had already uh, the second generation autofocus system, um, followed by the 8000i also. The, these two cameras came at the same time. Uh, and that was also the first tactical mistake Minolta did at the time. Um, because overnight, when the 7000 just appeared, Minolta became market leader. They yeah. were number one. The Nikon F3, which was at the time the pro camera, was kind of like everybody was confused. They said, is that really the system to invest in for the future? Or will be the autofocus system, the, the, new, the new generation? And if Minolta would have brought out a 9000i, I think mm. the history of cameras today would look totally different. So they just waited uh, with the second generation of um, a pro camera and just jumped over to the third generation, which was the XI, um, which the 9XI, which appeared in 1991. And uh, XI stand was, um, was, uh, the, was standing for uh, expert intelligence. Um, they had a new design level called uh, software design called um, Fuzzy Logic. <laughs> that was one of the, yeah, that was also kind of everything was fuzzy logic at the time. Um, uh, it's not the yes, no programming. Um, there was also the possibility of maybe or a little bit, and that was also part of it. But the 9XI was a tremendous milestone also in camera technology, although it's today a little bit, yeah. Uh, people just think, um, yeah, it's kind of a failure because the design was different. Also, the user interface. And the 9XI had the first camera at the time was a one twelve thousandth of a second shutter speed. It also was the fastest out-of-focus camera at the time. And it was the smallest with an internal motor being able to do five frames per second without a booster. So wow. there was no camera from Canon or uh, Nikon that could match the 9XI at the time. But in the meanwhile, also the competition woke up Mm -hmm. uh, first Canon, they brought out the EOS system with the EOS 1 um, and Nikon with the F4. 
Nikon was doing it very similar to Minolta. They had a, an internal autofocus system with that typical screwdriver drive. So the autofocus motor was in the camera, um, but the, the gear was, um, the, um, was in the lens. Yep. Um, they, uh, and Canon did a very, very, very clever step. They put the motor into the lens. Yep. So what you could do is you could adapt the torque of each lens that needed the torque needed into directly uh, the lens and well that was the reason why in the 90s Minolta lost first of all not having the 9000i with an improved autofocus as a pro camera and um, then having Canon with that really really good system in the 1990s that was the time of the sports photography and uh, and especially whenever you went to a soccer match it was like kind of like you only saw Canon cast all over. Mm, absolutely. And yeah. another interesting thing about the XI series was that they introduced the um, auto zoom. Yes. Where the camera yes. would, where if you paired it up with an XI lens, zoom lens, yes. yeah. it would actually um, compose. Yeah. It was, it was kind of a, uh, yeah, some people say it was a toy. Um, there, I, I must say for a certain extent, it's true. Um, some others, there are some very clever lenses there. For example, the 35, 200 millimeter super zoom. That is a lens you can definitely recommend even today if you have an alpha digital camera, because this is a tremendous optical design. It's very quick. It's very light. It's just a joy to use. Um, but at the time, yeah, it was not really the big success. Although you always have to think back. I mean, you have to see the perspective of the user at the time and users at the time, they love things. I mean, we were in the time where video recorders were talking. And even that hasn't changed these days with all the smart devices you can fill your house with. Yeah, yeah. well, well, well especially, I mean, uh, if, you have, if you talk to Ziri or whatever, you can ask her, do you love me or something like that? But uh, <laughs> she will give you a kind of uh, clever answer that you expect. <laughs> but, um, well, in the 90s, you just noticed, well, that is really a not really sophisticated answer to your video recorder gave you. <laughs> but we also have to say about the lens designs, which, and especially Minolta was kind of, Till the beginning of the 90s, really ahead, especially in lens design. They were the first ones releasing a 2.8 80 200 millimeter pro autofocus lens, um, APO. They were the first ones coming out with a 2.8 300 millimeter tele lens. And even very important to say, eight years before Nikon came out, was the, uh, the uh, four 600 millimeter super tele lens. That was kind of a yeah, uh, a real, real big, big thing. Um, and I was very surprised that Nikon took that long until they just released their autofocus. Yeah, and honestly, the the um, the lenses that came with the Maxim system are are absolutely fantastic, especially yeah. their zooms. I mean, my first first lens I got for um, the first two lenses I got for the Maxim system were the uh, thirty five to seventy f four and the um, beer can the seventy yeah. to two hundred f four. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then I just built built from there going with the 517-2828 and the um, 28-135-4-4.5, which well, people know as a secret handshake lens because yeah. they thought that it was being sold at cost when really it wasn't. <laughs> well, especially so. the, the 3570 and the beer can, the 7210, 
for the, these were at the time the dream teams. First of all, the 3570 is very, very small and compact, and it has the F4 from uh, 35 to 70 millimeter constantly. Yeah. And oh, it yeah. was also using aspheric lenses, uh, very light. Um, and uh, the 7210, that's an exact uh, design that also is used by Leica. Uh, this is for the money you get, really a, a, a perfect lens. I mean, it's just if you just go on eBay, um, and, it's, and, and also the material quality, the build quality is amazing. It's full of metal, full, fully made out of metal. I think the early versions had even a metal hood uh, lens mm. shade. Um, later on, they changed it to plastic, but the, uh, the entire design is really rigid. Um, there are also other lenses which should be mentioned. Uh, the 2835, uh, that is, uh, yeah, later on it was um, the, the factory did that was the G lens uh, factory, but it is also an amazing full metal jacket <laughs> design, just to say it like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, and then um, I also have a, a later a later one, the uh, seventeen to thirty five um, two point eight to four D from Konica Minolta. Yeah, that came quite late. I was just quite a bit later. There, there were yeah. there were different generations. I think the first one, which you really could summarize as the beer can, because they really look like beer cans. Um, there's also a very there's also the tiny beer can, which is the hundred two hundred millimeter. 4.5, I think. And um, there's also later came the um, 75, 300 millimeter beer. They all have mm. a similar design. And they are, especially if you're just looking for a very good lens um, uh, for little money, I think these are really great lenses. Oh, yeah. Um, another and one is the 85, 1.4. That's just, yeah. yes. Yeah. That is, a, but super expensive on the used market. Um, yeah. Another good uh, portrait one would be the um, 100 millimeter 2.8 macro. Yeah. 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 And um, that's a little easier on the budget. Yes. Uh, well, also the standard lenses, like the 50 millimeters, uh, the 1.7 and the 1.4. Uh, the 1.4 has a little bit problems with um, reflections uh, wide open, but um, they are, and, and that's a typical Minolta thing. Minolta was known for beautiful bouquets they were absolutely mm. the bouquet masters um back in the days until today they're considered as that when the xi series came out there's also one very similar unique lens is the 800 the 500 millimeter um uh, mirror reflex uh tele lens which is a very compact and it's the only mirror lens um of uh, out of focus lens on the market or ever produced for a SLR camera. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. All right. So after the XI series, where did Minolta go from there? Well, um, the uh, I think that the, um, the the feedback they got from the XI series, what they tried to do in the XI series was to react on Canon's EOS um, system, and um, so they made a little bit of a mishmash between. The, the, the Minolta interface that was the people were used to and the Canon one. Um, although it is, if you are in it, it's kind of a clever design, but people didn't really like it. So they started to start with the SI series afterwards, which was starting with the 700 SI, 500 SI, and uh, 800 SI. And 
later on, they came out with a 600 SI, and the 600 SI was already predicting the later Dynax mm. 7, Maxum 7, Dynax 9, because there they had a real classic user interface going back to how they did it with the Dynax, with the with the Maxum 9. Um, or the 9000, sorry, with the maximum 9000 from the very beginning. And that was definitely a success. Um, they had internal flashes. 800 SI, for example, um, was the first uh, SLR with the, with the guide, flash guide number, internal flash guide number of 20. Uh, wow. And it has had also a zoom reflector in the internal, in the internal camera flash. Um, it also went with one special thing. They in, uh, introduced the HSS um, high-speed uh, flash system, wireless flash. That was one of the things where Minolta was absolutely pioneering. Um, and they had a very clever approach to that. Um, so you had dedicated flashes. You had a dedicated flash system where you had independent flashes up to 20, 30, wherever you wanted to put them. And they were communicating with the camera via a strobe light yes. system, like yes. in, a, in a light conductor. So whenever mm -hmm. you shot wireless, the camera always had an information through the flashlight about um, the TTL control um, situation. And that was groundbreaking. Um, uh, a lot of uh, salespeople here in Germany, for example, they didn't even know about that function. And that's a typical problem of Minolta, I think, over the decades. Um, they had kind of clever design teams, but their marketing was, um, yeah, I don't know if they had something like called a marketing. <laughs> Sometimes you get the feeling about that. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's funny, like if it had been slightly different in their approach with marketing, it would definitely be a different camera world today. I'm not sure. Oh, definitely. We, we would definitely have, um, if not two big play, if not two different big players, we would definitely have three big players. Yeah. Oh yeah. Today for sure. Well, I mean, yeah. uh, you have to say that in the nineties, Benalta belonged to the big three. That is definitely yes. kind of like, like in the nineties already. Uh, and that is the difference between the eighties and the eighties. We had the big five. We had yep. uh, Canon, Nikon, uh, Minolta, Pentax, Olympus. Uh, Olympus and Pentax didn't make the autofocus race. They just lost it. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why they came with bridge cameras. So they, like the Olympus IS-1000 and 3000. And that also opened for them. That's why we have them. So these cameras were a good um, blueprint for a digital system. Uh, mm. and, and, and in fact, uh, the all-in-one digital camera, which came out in the 2000s. Um, but at the time in the 90s, Minolta was still one of the three leading companies with good oh, yeah. sales. Yeah. yeah, and those, uh, those HSS flashes are, are fantastic. Yeah. That was one yeah. of the things that I, um, <clears throat> I only have, I only have the one flash, but just, it works so much better than even my older Nikon flashes. Mm -hmm. My SB910 is just incredible, but it's like, well, this is exactly like my Minolta flash, except it was released yeah. now. <laughs> well, and that's where that's the Nikon, like the, the CLS, uh, Nikon yes. CLS system bears its roots from the Minolta system. And even if you look at the way that the Nikon creative lighting system works today, like the flashes all work either or you have a choice they work they can work independently of the camera body similar to how the the minolta system would work and then just 
you know, it would be doing its reading of its of the scene and then moving and then sending that information to the camera body. The same thing happens today with the with the CLS system. You can you can rely on the flash exposure metering to to do what it wants and tell the camera body and then operate the two the camera body and the flashes independently of each other. So you have the greatest amount of control over lighting. So you end up getting, uh, you know, what Minolta was thinking of is give the photographer essentially on the street, the same type of lighting flexibility that you would find in studio, mm -hmm. you know, except deliver that through a 35 millimeter body and essentially what are speed lights today. So, yep. I mean, these guys, they were pushing the envelope since, you know, the, the mid seventies. And, you know, frankly, it's a shame that they're part of Sony now, but um, yeah, you know, and well, they've certainly uh, lost their identity to a degree, I think. Yeah. The, the point is that, um, I mean, um, if you just think about the latest Sony models, but I mean, we can come later to that uh, maybe after the Dynax nine level, yeah. but um, they didn't kind of like, they didn't went bankrupt. So it's, that's one of the, the 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 um, uh, myths it's it's Minolta still lives till today in the, in yeah. the Sony. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they just live under a different badge, really. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Now, one of the other things that was uh, starting to take place in the '90s was uh, we saw the start of digital photography mm -hmm. in any big form. And you mentioned that they actually produced a digital back. Yes, um, for the 9000. Uh, when the first, uh, when the first uh, catalog came out of the 9000, I try. If you if you find one of these catalogs on eBay or wherever, just get it. It was kind of like a an, a an unbelievable, wonderful brochure that was made where they you could see the pride of the company when they came out with that artifact. And um, there were different backs. There were those backs with, let's say, we can do, put bulk film in it, but there was also right. a digital video for what was called a still video back. They had special floppy disks. They looked a little bit like a 3.5-inch floppy disk, but it was, was a little bit smaller. They had a special reading system for that, and um, I think it had something like 7.750, 0.7-something 7 megapixels. Mm -hmm. um, so you could remove your film back and you could put the um, the digital back uh it was very bulky by the way but um it was used especially for governmental uh, needs where you quickly needed uh, a digital image so yes the minolta was uh, the 9000 and the 7000 for both there were backs um if someone wants to see that there's a very good website it's called 9000.org there you can see that uh digital back okay so you'll find uh, a link to that in our episode notes and, That's uh, really cool. I had no idea that existed. Wow. Neither did I. I mean, I've been, I've, I've recently been working on a review of my um, D750, and one of the things that I did was go through the, um, the history of, of digital imaging, and even that didn't come up in my reading. But especially in '95, Minolta released the RD175. I don't know if you've heard of that camera. It was yep. Um, yep. based on a 500 SI. It was also available as Aqua, I think it had a SCSI connection and yeah. it used three CCDs. Yeah. It was a huge camera. Yeah, it was say. just it was under two high. megapixels, I believe. Yes, 175, I think. Yeah. And uh, they just, but they could only reach that by just dividing the CCD sensors for each color. Mm -hmm. uh, so you had for each color an own CCD sensor. There was a, a, a spectral splitter 
when the light beam came in, it was divided in uh, red, yellow, blue, and then it just came, came to the sensor. And later on, they made a color image out of that. Um, yeah, well, it's kind of a, the RD-175 was also a milestone history. Uh, and um, even I think in motion picture for some, um, uh, uh, so I think Cameron used it for, for some movies um, to do digital photos in order to do later on their um, CGI with it. Oh, that is cool. It was in the range of, I think, fifteen to twenty thousand um, yeah. dollars. So it was not a cheap thing. It was not no, a consumer I, camera. No. No. And it was it was a big bulky thing with a big yes. storage system, I believe, too. Right? Yes. Yeah. You, you oh, needed a makes... suitcase to transport it, just a camera. Yeah. Made for Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. I mean, I've seen several till today. Uh, there are some people in the internet. They um, because the problem is you cannot really connect it to a modern operating system. No. But some <clears throat> clever guys, they you just send them a CF card and they just write a small program so you can use mm -hmm. it on uh, uh, on your modern Microsoft or Apple system. Obviously, well, I never tried it what, myself, uh, but um, you do know what SCSI stood for. Uh, system can't see it. <laughs> <laughs> SCSI was a bane of my existence. Oh, in yeah. The, uh, in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s, well, when so, I was. Gosh, yeah, especially when like older systems started migrating into new systems. And then I oh. remember like wrestling a few times with like SCSI, SCSI drive arrays, trying to get old data off of those things. Oh, anyway, we're, we're, we're going right into computer nerd territory now. So we better, <laughs> we better make a U turn before people start falling asleep. <laughs> yeah. All right. So after the SI, we sort of get into the more um, late yeah. 90s, modern, yeah. modern well, era with, with wise, some of the best cameras that Minolta yeah. produced, the 5, yeah. the 7, and the 9. Well, the, the, um, during that period of the SI, they did the same thing like with the 9000 and 7000. They didn't bring out a uh, 9SI. So what they had uh, was the 800SI as a replacement for the 9XI, which was the process. Uh, meanwhile, they were working on a new groundbreaking camera, which was the Alpha 9 or Dynax 9 or Maximum 9, which was, to be honest, the first time I took it in my hand, I, I really had the feeling now I know how King Arthur felt when he had Excalibur the first time in his hands. Because <laughs> this thing was just the ultimate man's camera, if I just say it like that. I mean, uh, they have a stainless steel body. So everything, what, what you, when you read it, you, you think you are reading the, um, the, 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 the specs of a tank, kind of like stainless steel here, magnesium here, some kind of hardened there. Um, it is really, it was made for the ultimate, as an ultimate photography machine. Uh, and it has a hundred, hundred percent viewfinder and they even improved the Accumate uh, the, uh, screen, which was already extremely bright, uh, to a new level. The amount of microprisms was I think doubled or tripled. Mm -hmm. So um, you have such a bright image. When you combine that with the 1.485 millimeter lens, you get an image on the viewfinder that looks better than the reality. So uh, it is a wonderful camera to use. And... The next thing what they also did was they took over the user interface from the 600 SI, which was very simple. So you just look at the camera and whatever 
mode you set it. You just can see it from the positions of the dials. This camera is, especially with the battery pack, so designed that even if you have it horizontal or vertical, the balance point is always perfect. Um, yeah, I must say... It's, that was yeah. what sold me on the 9 with yeah. the VC9 grip. Yeah. Yeah. Just where your release sits is just perfectly it's, natural, it's just, it's, as yeah. opposed to where it is on the F5, where it's a little high up and it just sort of feels off off center. Yeah, they they just reduced really the amount of of functions of function buttons to the absolute minimum. Um, there's also a uh, a data bag uh, available for it. You can mm -hmm. store your, um, well, that was possible with the SI and with the XI series too, but you needed a special chip card. Uh, they abandoned the chip card uh, and uh, went now to, um, you just could put, you can put today an SD card in it and store your photos. Um, in fact, well, the datas of the photos you've taken, the lens uh, used, the, um, the shutter speed, frame number, and then you could, the, the, um, the data bag was printing in between uh, the, the images, all the datas, and you can transport it via an Excel sheet to your computer. Yeah, well, the camera itself is wonderful. Uh, the only thing that lacks was a um, ultrasonic uh, camera uh, lens drive. So uh, Minolta brought out a upgrade. So if you buy a used one, um, you can check if your camera is already upgraded. Whenever you bought later on a um, um, ultrasonic uh, motor lens from Minolta, you automatically got uh, the possibility to send it to Minolta and upgrade it. So Getting an upgraded camera that can do both the standard um, uh, old uh, screwdriver lenses plus the um, new high-speed motors, um, which can also use, for example, the modern Carl Zeiss lenses from Sony, mm -hmm. uh, that is the, uh, well, that's the ultimate deal if you get that. Yeah, and I think you can check that in the custom function settings, right? Like yes, if you yes. get the, the third value for the... Um... Uh, again, there's like three autofocus modes, not yes. not not the ones that are switchable on yes, the physical yes. switches of the camera, but in the custom functions menu. Uh, so I checked whenever, mine, uh, and sadly, mine is not upgraded. Yeah. But. So whenever whenever you're in a garage sale and you just get the camera, just check the functions. Look, if it has one function more than the standard one, don't say a word and yeah. just pay the five dollars. Yes, <laughs> good. Pay your five dollars and enjoy. Yes. frankly i think you know it's it's the best value for your dollar like if you want to get into high-end film slrs you know don't look at the f100 don't look at the f5 yeah. don't look at the f6 i mean certainly look at those but look at the look at the maxim or the dynax 9 first what is also interesting i mean if you already are an owner of a let's say a sony a7 and especially as a digital photographer i think a7 is well, it became more or less the most advanced. And uh, um, are you guys still there? Hello? I can hear you. I saw Alex looks a little bit like frozen. Alex, can you hear us? Oh, oh there he you is. Just keep oh, talking. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Should we start again? Yes. Sure. Okay. Well, um, especially if you are a digital photographer and using, let's say, a Sony A7, um, which is, I think, one of the standard cameras used by pros and really advanced. Uh, you can, via an adapter, use the Alpha... Uh, the A mount, the Minolta A mount, or which I use, I personally prefer the SLT 99, and I still have a Sony A 900. 
which is very similar to my Di uh, my my Dynax 9. Well, it's just kind of sometimes you think you have the, the same camera in your hand uh, as a digital camera. And um, yeah, it is a, it, it's definitely a system that still lives and uh, you can use it today. So the Alpha 9, Dynax 9, Maximum 9 is obviously um, a recommended camera. Uh, if it is too heavy for you, uh, you might think about an A, uh, the, the um, uh, Maximum 7 or... Dynax 7, which is even from the autofocus system more advanced than the, um, the Dynax 9. But uh, yeah, it has a more, more, uh, it doesn't have that steel housing, but it's also a, an excellent camera. It's much smaller, more compact, uh, and it supports also the modern lenses, the uh, uh, ultrasonic uh, motor drive. So that's something um, you also could think about. But, I mean, it is more a prosumer camera. You have to say that. Definitely. Plus, it has a sweet data back on it, very much like an F6. Yeah. The, well, or let's say that F6 has a data back like the Minolta because they were first. Uh, mm -hmm. There is one wonderful function is you can get an overview about the different um, uh, exposure values on the surface of your photo. It, uh, there's a honeycomb where it just shows you, okay, uh, it's especially for large format photographers, they love this. Just take a look at it and, and it's kind of like your, your uh, zone system already in the camera. But I mean, you have to say that the, the, um, the Dynax 7 is not as robust as the 9. Yes. So um, if you get it and they all suffer a little bit like all cameras of this area from the sticky syndrome, the plastic or the rubber gets a mm. little bit Sticky. Um, I sold it from mine with, uh, you know, Amaral, that thing that the car enthusiasts oh, yeah. use that um, I just, if you just apply it carefully, it helps very often and uh, do that regularly. And it just, just prevents it from, from cracking or um, being very sticky. Nice. Yeah. It's good to know. But it, it is true though. Like if you look between the difference between the seven and the nine, like all the programmable features that you have uh, in, in, in the nine is it's incredible. Like, I think there's like 21 or so programmable features, oh, yeah. um, you know, and you think about, you know, this is a camera that's what, 24, 24 years old from its launch. I think it was launched in what, 98, was it somewhere? Well, the Dynax nine, you mean the, yeah. the maximum nine? Well, yeah. the, it was, was launched it, was the, 70th, uh, the 70th anniversary of Minolta. Uh, it was 98, I think. 98 yeah. Or yeah. 97. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was, and two years later, I think the Dynax 7 uh, arrived on the market. Depends a little bit on the region where you live, sometimes a little bit earlier, a bit later. So, um, and it's uh, always a confusion. It's just an Alpha 7, it's a Dynax 7, or it's a Maxum 7. I think yeah, for the depends. Maxum, there is also that funny story about Exxon. Yes, <laughs> yes. Hence the, yeah, if you find one with one X or two Xs, I believe. Yeah. The cross Xs. Or the, the cross, cross axis, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. I guess, yeah, mine is uh, post lawsuit. I'm guessing the axes well, are not well, crossed. It was, it was really only the um, earliest ones yeah. that had the crossed axis. So the seven thousand and some early versions of mm -hmm. uh, lenses would have the crossed axis, and then Exxon was like, uh, "That's a little too close to our logo." <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it could have. Imagine someone is just not buying their their because they're buying a camera oh i tried to fill up my car with <laughs> that's a little bit crazy but oh, yeah well, that's how it goes yeah. 
And again, you, um, it really depends on the market where the camera was sold. The Maxims are here in North America, Alphas out in Japan, and Dynex is uh, Europe. So, so that was also then, a, now was, it's just all Alpha under Sony. Yeah, it's now all Alpha. Yeah. yeah. But they had that before, um, also with the uh, with the incredible X1, XM, XM mm-hmm. motor, XK in the United States. Uh, by the way, also one of the stories where Minolta was 10 years ahead the market. I mean, imagine in 1972, they bring out a camera that was obviously a Nikon F3 in 72. Uh, which yes. is, <laughs> and people didn't buy it because they just said, oh, it's too much electronics. And uh, who wants to go for that? Sometimes yeah. it's not really good to be too early. Yeah, that's fine. Oh. I like my XE7. Yeah, and well, but, you know, if you look at the history of Minolta too, like they have always been at the leading edge of new camera technology, and really continue to be so. Like, I mean, if you look at the Max and Nine, like they that was the first, um, uh, like onset of uh, of pre- well, they called it predictive autofocus, but you mm-hmm. know, in the Nikon world, we we call that three D tracking. Now, mm-hmm. and all of the modern digital cameras have that. I mean, it's different technology with the three D tracking, but their concept of, you know, having the camera calculate where your subject is going to be um, at certain, you know, mm-hmm. at certain speeds or whatever shutter speed you're using calculates that and then predicts the focus point. I mean, you look at that technology, like that's almost getting into the realm of, of AI today, but yeah, then yeah. you rewind the clock and you're like, wait a minute, this is the mid nineties. Well, yeah. the 9XI had that already. This, this, and, and the funny thing about the XI was the moment you touched the camera, there were contacts on the grip and yeah. there were contacts on the, um, there were sensors on the, uh, the viewfinder. Yeah. The moment you put it on the eye, automatically the motor started to accelerate yeah. in a certain direction so that you don't, that the camera is already activated. And I think that was a reaction to the Canon EOS system. Yeah. Um, although they could even be faster with the 9XI than the EOS 1 was at the time, um, it, it shows that they had some kind of very, very um, yeah, innovative ideas. But yeah, yeah. and it's certainly innovative. they were trying to recapture a lot of that sports photography market mm-hmm. that at the time Canon was dominating. Like if you looked at a sporting event back then, Oh, it was a sea of tan colored lenses like it was yeah, all yeah. the all the oh, yeah. canon glass and um you know they were they were the market leaders at the time but then if you think like you know you look at the early electronic cameras used in sports photography in the 80s and 90s like having the camera wake up when you touched it ready mm-hmm. to go that's pretty a pretty big technological advancement given the time frame yeah you know, and, and they, they can, they've continued doing that, you know, with this. Yeah, even with this. even in the digital era, I mean, we talked about the Dynax 7 uh, or the Maximum 7. Uh, there was their sister, the digital sister was the 7D, which looked very similar to the, to the analog uh, film camera and was the first camera with an internal uh, shake um, reducing or moving sensor yeah. that was just just trying to reduce with an anti-shake system, a camera internal anti-shake system. Yeah. Um, and it was also the first one. And nowadays, I think this is considered as the standard of, uh, of, of an anti-shake system. Yeah. And, and pretty much every manufacturer has some in-body type of image yeah. stabilization now. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the image stabilization via lenses is not really the best uh, solution. No. Because yeah, no. I mean, you are you are investing so much money into uh, getting everything centered, 
every lens yeah. center so that it's all on the optical axis. And then you start to move a single element. It definitely does not increase the quality of the lens. So having really a the film plane, or in fact, that's with film not working, but uh, with the with the sensor to move it, that is in fact the the way to go. Better way. Yeah, no, I keep unless I'm unless I'm shooting handheld, and even then, I keep mm -hmm. the uh, VR off on my uh, Nikkor uh, seventy to two hundred G. I mean, it's great to have it. I mean, just if, yeah. you, if you don't oh. have other systems and if you use film, then it's the mm -hmm. only way to do it, and uh, it's better not it's better to use it than having a a blurry image or <laughs> because yeah. because you're not using a tripod. So, Marwin. Um, Silver Grain Classics, you guys have just launched your very own podcast. So, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, that let's is, let's hear about it. Well, yeah, we just uh, we had the fireside chat at the very beginning of the year, where it was about um, getting people together um, from the industry, from uh, photographers, uh, service providers, and the after having people like David Burnett and all on the fireside chat, suddenly they just were so successful that people asked us um, to say, can you do a podcast? And we just said, okay, let's do a podcast, a small one. Um, and yeah, we started with it. Uh, Florian Kapps from SuperSense was there. Uh, we had Mirko and Alina from Adox. And the last uh, one was with one of the investors of Titina. So it will be launched next week. So you can, can hear that story there. It's always an hour and a half uh, where we have a little bit more time to go into detail beside the fireside chat, which will start again next month. Nice. And also, we'd like to thank Silvergrain Classics. If you check our episode notes and want to buy a subscription to their amazing magazine, <coughs> use the code CCR21 to get 10% off your order. And they are also offering three free editions to the first three people who email um, Classic Camera Revival um, at gmail.com. And the link again will be in the notes with your name, your address, and a wonderful note about the podcast and Silver Grain Classics, and you will get a free copy sent directly from Marwin. Yeah, so, from Germany. We're going to send it. Right, yeah. Thank you. thank you so much, Marwin, for again coming on our show and sharing such a wonderful knowledge of this amazing camera system and for providing the, the discount code, the free magazines, and, of course, the affiliate link. Thank you very much. It's always a fun to talk with you guys. <laughs> <laughs> I always learn so much of our discussions with you. Oh. Incredible. <laughs> Me too. It's kind of like uh, the first time always on Saturdays that I say, oh, now I'm talking with really normal people. That's what I love. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, if we have a couple minutes, I noticed you uh, earlier this month, you're launching a, um, an analog photography boot camp. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, unfortunately, we have so many recruits so far. So please don't apply anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good sign, at least. Those are good problems to have, right? So. <laughs> Absolutely. Especially when you get to go do it at an old uh, Cold War military base. Yeah, wow. Yeah, just you can check it on YouTube if you like. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> All right. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. <laughs> My name's Alex Lopes. As always, get out there, stay safe, shoot some cool film photos. Uh, this is James Lee. Uh, thanks, Marwin, for, for joining us. Uh, again, a pleasure always. And uh, 
get out there and shoot. Uh, look for the next round of the Analog Photography Boot Camp because this one's full. Uh, get out there and uh, expose some film, will ya? Oh. So I should say also something. So thank yes. you very much. It was a pleasure. And uh, stay safe outside there all over the world. And we keep in touch. I hope to hear from you guys. Yeah, for sure.